Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah. This is from our Advent series, An Unexpected King. If you would like to know more about our church, please come check us out at cbcsavannah.com. Now, we're going we're gonna to spend the next four weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, really just kind of talking about Advent. This is one of the, you know, obviously a lot of our favorite times of the year. I love, well, one of the things I love about this time of the year is the Christmas movies that start coming on again. Um, and one of my favorites kind of out of my childhood is the Christmas story, right? Ralphie, um, his, his whole desire, the whole movie is him wanting a Red Rider BB gun, right? And so it kind of works through all that. And so in that, that Christmas morning, he wakes up with all these expectations, right? That there it's going to be, that, that Red Rider. And so he opens up all his presents, and there's socks, and there's that little pink outfit that his aunt gave him, right? And there's all these things. And yet the unexpected happens. There's no Red Rider BB gun. But then there's that great scene where the dad kind of says, hey, what's that over there? What's that? And he goes and looks behind the, the tree, and there it is, and he unwraps it, and he just rips it up, and then that Red Rider carbine action 200-shot range air rifle is there, right? And it's his, all the expectations were met, right? And it's just a beautiful, it's just a great picture of something that was unexpected, and then here it is. And we're going to talk about, uh, these next four weeks, an unexpected king, um, that Jesus' first coming, in many ways, was not what they expected. And so every week as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1 and 2, there's just going to be an unexpectedness. We're going to see next week an unexpected cost. And we're going to see these unexpected worshipers show up. And we're going to see unexpected opposition. And today, we're going to see that Messiah came from an unexpected family. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew, chapter 1. And what we're going to see, again, initially, the coming of Messiah was not what they expected, not what they even necessarily wanted, but in the end, it was glorious, right? And Ethan kind of explained Advent right up front. The, the word Advent is not a Bible word. It's, it's a Latin term. Adventus just means the coming. And so we live uh, in, this, in this unique period of history where we look back at the, the first coming, the, the so-called hallelujah of the first coming in, in expectation of the Maranatha, the Greek word for even so come. So we're in that period, and the purpose of Advent is to reflect on the first coming with expectation in the second. And each week of Advent, we kind of have a theme, um, faith, hope, love, joy. Today, we, we lit what's often called the prophecy candle. And we're going to talk about hope today. Uh, and specifically, we're going to talk about how do we find hope in an unexpected family, Right? An unexpected family. And we're going to look at Matthew 1, 1 to 17. And, and see, the way God, Matthew's gospel unpacks, he, does, he breaks all the rules. Okay, as, as a teacher, as a preacher, one of the things they teach you in seminary is, okay, you've got to grab everyone's attention up front. Right? Even if it means insulting their football team. But somehow, you've got, you got that right up front, grab their attention so they listen to you. Right? The way Matthew starts his gospel is not that. Not for us, anyway. He starts with a genealogy. Genealogies are the part of the Bible that when you're like all excited about, I'm going to read my Bible in a year, and you get to it, it, it blows the whole thing up, right? 
Especially if you're like, I'm going to start the New Testament this year. And you turn to Matthew 1 and the first thing is a genealogy. You make it one day in and you're done. For us, that's a genealogy, right? But for them, and what I want to show you today is this actually brings hope to us. So I want to read this text um, real quick. And then, and then we'll t- talk about it. So, so it starts, wait, I don't, I don't know if I want to read it. Ethan, where you at? You, you got, could you help me with this, Ethan, please? I know you don't want to help me with this, Ethan, but Ethan's going to help us with this because it's, it's not exciting, but Ethan's going to make it exciting for us a little bit. So come on, Ethan. I'm standing right here. I'm not, I'll help you. Talk about unexpected. <laughs> you got this. I can, I promise all right, a couple thoughts before I sing this next little genealogy song. Number one, you're going to feel a unique motion. It's going to be your knee kind of rising. You might do this. That's okay. Experience that. Feel that. Number two, I did not write this song. <laughs> Abraham had Isaac. Isaac, he had Jacob. Jacob, he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman, Tamar. Perez, he brought Hezron up and then came. Aram, then Aminadab, then Nishan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who hath Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse and David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Uzziah. Jotham, then Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amen, who was Amen, was father of a good boy named Josiah. The grandfather Jehoiakim caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar. Not really, but it rhymes. <laughs> then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abihu, who had Eliakim. Like him at Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliu then. He had Eleazar, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Now listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. That's Andrew Peterson's uh, Matthew's Begats, ladies and gentlemen. Ethan did a great job. So I figured that was a little bit more exciting than reading through it. Um, But let's start in verse 1. Thanks, buddy. (laughs) The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So not only does he start with a genealogy, which for us is like a genealogy, but he also breaks another rule. He tells you the end of the story, right? 
he would not have been a good mystery novel writer, right? He tells you the end. Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is his title. He is the Messiah, right? You just don't, if you want to tell a good story, you don't tell the ending. George Lucas doesn't tell you in 1977, oh, by the way, Darth Vader is Luke's dad, Princess Leia is his sister, and in the end, Darth Vader turns good again. It ruins the whole deal. But right up front, he says, Jesus is the Christ, and he is writing to a Jewish audience, and he's trying to show them that this, this one who comes from the line of David, from the line of Abraham, is the promised Messiah. And, and the Old Testament Jews, they knew their Bibles, and they knew there was all sorts of requirements and a resume, so to speak, that the Messiah had to have. And so he hits two of those right up front. He is the son of David, and we read that earlier, that one would come from the root of Jesse, Isaiah 11. And that he is also the son of Abraham. We read it earlier, Genesis 12. That in you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so he is going to set out to show you that Jesus has the right resume. Right? That's what a genealogy is. It's, it's a resume. Right? It's a modern day LinkedIn to show who you were. Right? And so he's going to work through from Abraham, right, then through David, all the way down to Mary, as we saw. And he does it in three movements. There's three movements of 14. And so it's, when it's summarized at the end, it said all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, right? And then from David to Babylon, 14. And from and Babylon to Jesus, 14. Now, what you need to understand is this. Sometimes in a genealogy, you leave out names, right? Uh, the word son of could mean grandson. It could be uh, great-grandson. So there's a, there's a reason why he kind of groups it into 14s. He doesn't, it's not actually, literally, there's only 14, 14, 14. He leaves out specific names. We know that from other genealogies. But Matthew does it for a reason, because he's trying to even more so highlight what's going on here. And I, I don't know if this, it didn't come across, I guess, the, uh, the Hebrew. So I was going to show you what happened here. Basically, the word David in Hebrew, D. VD, basically, there's no vowels in Hebrew, has three letters. In Hebrew, each letter has a, a numerical value. So Dalet is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That's four. There's two of them, David, right? So four plus four is what? You guys are geniuses. Four plus four is what? Very good. The middle letter in David is a Vav. It's the sixth letter. So eight plus six is what? 14. Man, some of you guys are like really, I don't want you to be my like realtor, doctor, or anything, right? Okay. Right, so he's trying to highlight, even in how he arranges this genealogy, 14, David. He's trying to show you Jesus is the son of David. It's just, just we don't, you know, we're not, it doesn't impress us, but for a Jewish audience, that's big. That's huge, right? And so that's how he's going to move through. He also, he has the right physical, right physical requirements, but he also has the right spiritual ones. Look at verse 16. Here we go. I had to go through all those numbers that didn't come across in Microsoft font, right? Um, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And you want to kind of underline that in your, in your mind, right? Of whom Jesus was born. He goes out of his way to show you Joseph is there, but he's not his dad. That word of whom, is, is, it's feminine in the original context. Just like in English, your pronouns have to match the noun that they modify, right? I don't say, uh, my son was with me, she uh, bought a candle or whatever, right? You have to use he because the pronouns have to match. He is showing here that Jesus is from Mary, not Joseph. You say, is that significant? Eternally. It's eternally significant for multiple reasons. Number one, because Jesus was prophesied to be born of a virgin, Isaiah seven fourteen, 
right? The Lord will give you a sign, the virgin shall conceive. Why is the virgin birth, therefore, so important? Because your sin nature is passed down through your pops, who is passed down through his pops, his pops, all the way back to Papa Adam. Your sin nature is passed through your daddy. So, so ladies, when you say, this is your fault, honey, you are actually right, all right? This is ultimately, it is their fault. Because your sin nature is passed through your dad. So Jesus, to be the Messiah of, of humanity, had to become one of us. So he has to become, he has to take on uh, humanity and flesh, John 1.1. 1, 1. But he also has to be perfect. So he has to escape the Adamic curse of sin. How does, he, how does God do that? He brings him about through a virgin. So he can be human and die for us, but yet he doesn't have that sin nature, thus he can be perfect. So the virgin birth is one of those essential truths that we grasp that, that all of Christianity really holds on. The, the physical resurrection, obviously, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, these are critical to Christianity, right? Because if Jesus has an earthly father, then he has a sin nature, and he's not perfect, thus he can't be our substitute. He can't sacrifice. There's many people that come from David that could have been Messiah. There's many people who were born in Bethlehem. There's many, even Jesus has four brothers from Mary, four, four brothers who had Joseph as their dad, but only one person in human history was ever virgin born, right? And that is Jesus the Messiah. And so Matthew sets apart right up front to show Jesus has the physical and the spiritual lineage to be the promised Messiah, right? So let's, let's kind of jump in, and I'm not going to, again, go through every single name and be like, okay, let me tell you about Ambinabadab. And But I want to highlight some things for us from this unexpected family that point us to hope, right? How can we have hope from this list of names that really, for most of us, doesn't mean a lot? Let me give you three reasons we'll work through and we'll talk about. Here's number one. We can have hope in this because God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. So last Monday... I got on Amazon, I needed a new set of headphones, found the ones I wanted, I was on my couch, on my phone. I found the ones I wanted, I have Amazon Prime, God's a gift to man, right? And so I hit that little one-click, instant buy, boom, booyah, right? I'm like, awesome. And then I get this text, or email that says, your earphones will be delivered on Friday. And I was like, I got gypped. That's four days. Everyone who has Amazon Prime knows that you have two-day free shipping, I'm like, what is wrong with this world? What is the world coming to? Amazon Prime is doubling up. And I was a little bit bitter for a moment. And then I realized, wait a minute. I'm sitting on my couch at 10 o'clock at night with a little phone. I found somehow through some invisible magic called the internet, some, a pair of headphones that I want. I hit a button. Now, somebody in some warehouse in New Mexico is going to put those on a shelf into a cart, and it's going to mail it to me in three to four days. And I actually did get it in two days, by the way. <laughs> but here's my point. We have such a now mentality. Now, get it now, get it now. Two days, I'm mad. I don't get my earphones in two days. This, this mentality, it's got to be now, it's got to be now, it's just quick. And what we see from this genealogy is God keeps his promises, but sometimes it takes a while. It takes a long time sometimes, Right? He does what he says he's going to do, but it's not Amazon Prime. From the time that we read that first prophecy from Genesis 12 to the coming of the Messiah, do you know how long that was? 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Even from the promise of the end of the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, till the coming of Jesus, there's 400 years where God is silent. No prophets, no nothing. God sends no word from heaven. It's just silent. Think about it. 400 years of silence. 
What if you lived in that time? And you're thinking, we're slaves. God is nowhere to be found. Our city's constantly in war. And, and God doesn't care. 400 years. You know what was going on 400 years ago in America? The Mayflower Compact. Some of you don't even know what that is. It's been so long since high school, you don't even remember the Mayflower Compact. Pocahontas. Remember Pocahontas, the Disney film? That was taking place 400 years ago. Okay, give you some context. That's a long time. God is not slow. God keeps his word, even if it sometimes takes time. We cannot measure his faithfulness by Amazon Prime, right? We can't. He keeps his word. I, I'm reading the uh, Voyage of Don Trader to my boys at night, working through the Chronicles of Narnia, and there's this great line uh, that Aslan says. He's with Lucy, and, uh, and Lucy's like knows that Aslan is leaving, and Aslan says this, do not look sad, dear one. We shall soon meet again. And Lucy says, please, Aslan, what do you call soon? And I love this line. He says, I call all times soon. And he instantly vanishes. Because, y'all, we got to remember for God, who is eternal, I mean, in eternity past, God existed. And, and before that, God existed. So what is 2,000 years? It's a vapor. I call all times Soon. Paul says in Galatians 4 that Jesus came in the fullness of time, at the appropriate time. He kept his word. And if he kept his word for all those promises for the first coming, what does that mean for the second coming? That he will do the same. Even if it takes, how long has it been since Jesus uh, went back into heaven? How, long, how many years? 2,000 years. Same amount from when the first promise was. Right? And I know everyone's like, oh, yeah, Christians been talking about Jesus coming for whatever, whatever. Yes, just like they were talking about Messiah coming. He came the first time, he will come the second. There's all these promises that God has given his people. And, it, and the point of his promises is to give us hope. To give us hope. That, that's, that's why. Peter calls them precious and magnificent promises. And you know when promises become more precious? And more magnificent, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, right? That's when promises have a robustness to them. It becomes significant. I saw this video this week on the news. I think it was on Yahoo or something like that. Did you see this? The guy on the uh, hand glider that they forgot to hook up. I'm thinking you had one job. Hook the guy up. That's like the mailman, like, leaving without the mail. You have one job, deliver mail. I'm like, hook the guy up. Everything else doesn't matter. Hook the guy up. But he, they don't hook him up, and he jumps off this mountain in Switzerland, and I watched the whole thing just like, oh, my goodness. He literally, you just, I'm looking at his hand. He's grabbing on with all his might, and he's grabbing this guy's leg and anything he can hold on to until they crash land. And they do, and he makes it, right? But I'm just thinking about that is the valley of the shadow of death. And what is he doing? He's clinging to the only thing that he has, that pole. That's, that's, that's the promises that are precious and magnificent, right? That, that's what God desires for us. That's how we have hope. And, and in this context, when this book is written, Matthew, when Jesus comes, remember, the people of Israel had been enslaved for 700 years. 700 years by different kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece. At this point, it's Rome. So everywhere they look, it's Rome. Rome takes all their money. They're burdened with taxes. Rome burns and pillages their villages. Rome kills their people. Rome oppresses. Rome keeps them from, from worshiping in the way they want to. All they know is slavery, right? And all they have is promises. And, and for us, 
Maybe you're not enslaved by Rome, but maybe you have a wall of debt that feels like slavery, that, that keeps you up at night, that you're stressed about, that you're worried about. And what you need is a promise, a promise uh, like cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. you maybe you need that promise that, that Christ has forgiven a greater debt than any financial debt that you have. Maybe you need to be reminded of that so that you can cling to that when things are dark. And maybe you don't feel the burden of Caesar's taxes, but maybe you feel the burden of loneliness. And you feel like no one cares and no one called you on Thanksgiving and you had nowhere to go. And maybe you need the promise that Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. Right? So that's a precious promise. Or maybe you just feel weak, feel like quitting. Maybe you got a physical issue, Right? arthritis or headaches or whatever, and you just feel like you cannot go on, and you need a promise like God makes to Israel uh, when they are, uh, again, enslaved, when he says, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand, right? Maybe you're not getting your town ravaged by Rome, but maybe sin is ravaging your home. Maybe pornography. Maybe a wayward child, Right? Maybe you feel like you're never gonna have victory over that and need to be reminded that, that you are created for good works which, which God prepared before and that you may walk in them. That there is no temptation that has overcome, overtaken you, but such is common. These are precious and magnificent promises, right? That, that you need to cling to. That, that he will keep us in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because we trust him. These are meant to give us hope, y'all, and it's especially true when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. When everything's great, we don't, we don't cling. When we're hooked in, we're fine. It's when that we're not, and we got one hand on it, right? Maybe you've been waiting for years. You have a wayward child or a wayward spouse, or you've just been praying for this thing for so long, and the promise is that you should keep seeking, that you should keep knocking, that you should keep asking, that God hears you, Right? I don't know what valley you're coming out of, what one you're about to head into, but I know this, that God keeps his word, and because he keeps his word, we have hope. And here's the hard part about this, y'all. All right, I need you, I need you to kind of lean in for just a second. That doesn't mean everything right now is gonna be Amazon Prime fine. You might live with chronic back pain for the next 20 years. God may say, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You've been maybe begging for that, that to be removed. And, and he might say, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My, my power is made strong in weakness. You may never see on this side of eternity everything that you desire. Right? You, you may never get that dream job. You, you may never have, be able to have another child. You, I don't know what it is, but you may never. But here's what I do know. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Right? Oh, how, how long is soon? I call all times soon. And when he does, he will make every wrong right and he will wipe every tear from every eye. And that is ultimately, y'all, what Advent is about. We look back, he kept his promises. 2,000 years later, he will keep his promises. And we wanna be clinging to the precious and magnificent promises of God. That's the first thing we find hope. Here's the second one. As I see in this, in this genealogy that God is sovereign. That's a kind of a fancy word I know for churches. But what that means is he's in complete and absolute control of all things. 
And, and I could unpack a thousand different ways. Let me just give you three, one from each kind of movement of, of, his, of the 14. The first, for, the first you know, 14 starts with Abraham, goes down through David. And, and kind of what I think I see highlighted in this section is God is sovereign over of election over who he chooses to do what he's accomplishing. And God has been using people for thousands of years and choosing and using people for his glory, people that we wouldn't choose. And he starts with Abraham, right? He starts right off the bat. God chooses Abraham. And, and don't think that Abraham was just like deacon and Sunday school teacher living in Mesopotamia, and God's like, well, that's a good dude, I'll choose him. No, Abraham was an idolater. And God picks him up and says, I'm gonna bless you to those, we read it, those who curse you, I'm gonna curse all the nations of the world. So he takes Abraham, he promised him he's gonna have a kid, takes him 25 years, he finally has Isaac, they think it's funny, they're getting pregnant at 100, they laugh, they call him laughter. Isaac has two kids, twins, Esau the oldest and Jacob, and he says, I'm gonna build a nation out of one of these guys. And if I'm choosing who I'm gonna build a nation out, you got one of them who's kind of like bodybuilder, outdoorsman, hunter, right? I'm choosing that dude, he's a warrior. I'm not choosing kind of like soft hands, you know, lotion on the hands, Jacob, who likes to hang out inside the tents. Who does God choose? Jacob, the liar. And then Jacob has 12 kids, and all of them but one are knuckleheads. One named Joseph, he's about the only good one. And so I'm thinking, if I'm gonna choose anyone, I'm gonna choose Joseph. God says, no, I'm gonna choose Judah. He's the fourth born. And we'll see his issues in a minute. But you go down the line, you go to David. You think, oh, David. David was the runt. He was the reject of the fam. Right? Proving, once again, God loves the short people of the world. He, but he chooses the youngest, the reject, the one that they're almost, oh my, I forgot, we have David. I'm, I'm the wilderness, taking care of the sheep. That's who God chooses. Right? And here's the beauty of that. God has chosen you before the foundation of the world to be his child. Not because there's anything special about you. Because it's about him being special. Right? He is sovereign over, over election, right? Over choosing to use people who we wouldn't use, right? There's hope there. And seven through 11, he kind of deals with the monarchy and all the kings. And what you look at there is you see a bunch of good kings and a bunch of bad kings. You have a bunch of guys you recognize their name, David, Solomon, maybe Hezekiah. It's kind of like presidents. We got George Washington, Abe Lincoln. We got, we got those names down. But there's a bunch of guys in there like Millard Fillmore. Who knows who that is? Chester Arthur. These are presidents no one knows about or cares about. But there's a bunch of guys like that. But what you see is some are good kings and some are bad kings. Some are so bad, like, uh, like a couple of them, Manasseh, he burns his own kids to idols. He sacrifices his own children. Some with Ahaz. Jeconiah is so bad that God says, you're done. I'm, I'm in just, your whole family's out. And what you see is God is sovereign even over opposition. These are kings who put their hands in God's face and say, we don't want you, we want Baal. And God says, that's fine. I'm still gonna bring my Messiah through you, right? Now, if God can take opposition like that and still bring about his Messiah, how, how can he, what can he do in your life with opposition? I mean, what, how, he can handle people who are rejecting him completely and say, despite you, I'm gonna bring about redemption and Messiah. So what does that mean for opposition in your, in your life? That God can use crazy opposition. Maybe it's a teacher who mocks your faith or a spouse that doesn't want you to, to follow Jesus, or, or whatever, a boss who's a jerk. You guys are like, nothing can stop God's plan for your life. Understand that. No opposition. God's calling and his plan for your life cannot be thwarted, not even by the worst Manasseh, not even by Nebuchadnezzar, not even by Caesar. 
God's will will be accomplished. Psalm 2, the leaders of the world rage against God, and it says he laughs. He's like, ha, yeah. That's the idea. Who can stop this God? He's sovereign over opposition. And then the last section is this dark period of, of Israel's history, 12 to 16. It's the, it's the deportation, and it's when they're all gone out of the land, and there's no, there's no temple, and there's no worship. And what I, what I want to encourage you is that God is sovereign even over the silence. 400 years, nothing from God. No word of God written, no prophecies made, no nothing. But God was yet, he was preparing Shealtiel and Zerubbabel and down the line for a little carpenter named Joseph who would be the stepdad of Jesus. And, and Piper writes, I love this quote, he says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three. Right? You may seem silent. Spurgeon says God is too good and too, to be unkind is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. God is doing m- many things in the silence. And he's not Amazon Prime. And it, sometimes it takes time. I, I got to see something this week in this church that, that's been prayed for for six years. And it went up and down and up and down. And it was just this great answer to prayer and celebration on Friday to see. And at, at times it was like, what's going to happen? But God was faithful even when we didn't know what was going on. That's that's hope and silence, right, over, over of election, over opposition, that our God is a God who is sovereign, and our God is a God who keeps his promise. And one more thing, our God is a God of grace. You read through this list, it's, it's kind of funny if you go back and read some of these stories. When you write a resume, I haven't written a resume in years, uh, I think I had one when I went to work for like Toys R Us or something like that back in you know, third grade or whatever, but... Uh, when you write a resume, what do you do? You pick the high points, right? You don't, you don't pick that, like, paper out when you were 12 years old and you broke someone's window. It's like, I'm going to leave that job off. Or when you were a waitress and you spilled all the waters on the guy and you're like, you got fired. You leave that one out and you put, like, I got Dean's List in middle school. You know, we'll put that down. That was good. All right? I, you put the high points. Or, or, like, if you're trying to trace your ancestry, if you do that, like, DNA thing and swab in your mouth and you send it off and you find out your uncle is Saddam Hussein... You're probably not posting that on Facebook, right? All my, you know, all my ancestors were horse thieves, you know, bootleggers back in the 70s. You're going to leave that off. Jesus doesn't leave it off. In fact, you walk through this list. It starts off with Abraham. Again, Abraham sold his wife out twice, right? Isaac, his son, horrible dad, played favorites. The reason their sons were fighting so much is because dad liked this one, mom liked this one. Jacob, a liar. His name means deceiver. Surplanter, right? You work down the list. Solomon, he's in there, has like a thousand wives. Not a good move, right? He puts, he puts women in this genealogy, which was unheard of in that day because women were devalued. And what Jesus does is he says, no, 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 women are valued. They're in the image of God. He puts them in his family, right? He puts Gentiles there to show that he's not just a Jewish Messiah. He's a Messiah for all. You got Rahab. You got Ruth, the Moabitess. And then you work through, and it, y'all, it reads like a Jerry Springer sketch. I mean, you start off with Judah in verse 3, and we're like, yeah, Judah, yeah, he's the great Judah. If you look at verse 3, I think I have it up there, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. Oh, isn't that sweet? He had two boys. Yeah, he had twins. It's exciting. What it, but it says, by Tamar. You know who Tamar was? That was his daughter-in-law. That's Jerry Springer. Right? That, that's, that's sketch. Right? You keep going down the list. Right? You have Ruth, 
right? She's the reject. She's not even allowed to go in the temple. You have Rahab the harlot, right? You have David. And when it talks about David, it's so interesting. It talks about him being, uh, David was the father of Solomon. But notice verse 6, by the wife of Uriah. He's highlighting the fact that, oh, that wasn't his wife. Well, what happened to him? Oh, he was killed by David so he could hide his adultery. You got murder and adultery right there. Solomon, right? He's got a thousand wives. Or 300, sorry. 300 wives, 700 concubines. And it just, whammy after whammy, it's like, this is a broken family tree. Right? It's broken. But yet Jesus is not ashamed to put them in his family. In fact, the writer to Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. See, that's grace. And I think some of us here today just need to be reminded when we think about the first advent. Because there's that, maybe there's that one thing you did in your life. Maybe it was a divorce 15 years ago. Maybe it was the way you lived in your college years. I don't know what it is. But there's that one thing, that one mistake that just haunts you. And you just can't seem to get over it. And what you need to do is you need to look at Bathsheba. She's got a pretty big incident in her life. And Jesus says, she's in here. Or maybe you just lived a wild lifestyle by your own choice. Grew up in the church, rejected God, went off and did my thing. And you have some some shame and guilt there. You know who you need to look at? You need to look at Rahab, who finds herself as the great, 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 great. Jesus says, that's my great, 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 great grandmother. She was a prostitute and a Gentile, right? You got a family issues. You come from the wrong side of the tracks. You're like, well, you know, our family is just, you don't want to go to my house. You don't want to see where we came from. It's dark. It's not Bible. You need to look at Ruth, the Moabitess, Right? And Jesus says, she's my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma too. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's the point of Advent, right? He doesn't flinch to be associated. In fact, what he gets hammered for in the Gospels is that he was a friend of sinners, right? And this unexpected family is filled with sinners that he makes his family. And that's who we are. And that's what we remember. That's why it's Community Bible Church, not Community Bible Club, Community Bible Church, because a church is a hospital for sinners. That's what we are, right? It is a shelter for refugees seeking the grace of God. And the hope is this. I don't care where you've been, I don't care what you've done, that Jesus came to save sinners like me. We sang it earlier. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. It's us. But Jesus comes. And John says, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Y'all, there's hope there. That's, that's the point of Advent. We look back at what Christ has done. He has kept his promises. He is sovereign. And he is a God of grace. And, I, and I'd invite you today, if you never have met him, if you've never put your faith in him, to do that today. That's what Christmas is about. That's why we're here. That's why we worship. And if you have questions about that, if you're like, ah, oh, I'm wrestling with this, and you want to know, we have folks in the back hall that would love to pray for you. We'd love to meet with you, our pastoral team. Uh, you can put 
your name on a connect card and we'll, we'll contact you. We just want you to be able to celebrate the hope of grace and the hope of who Christ is, uh, knowing him as your savior. So let me pray and we'll continue to worship. Father, I ask that uh, as we just enter in this time of, of remembering, of expectation, um, that we would remember the hope that you bring, even in, a, in an unexpected way, in an unexpected family, uh, how you are sovereign over the, the history of humanity, how you are faithful to keep your word, that you will one day come because you said you would, uh, and that you show grace to those who believe and who come to you. And that's our hope. That's what we want to celebrate. That's what we remember this time of year. And so I just pray that that would be at our hearts and that we would just treasure this time, just like Mary treasured and pondered all those things in her heart, that we would treasure this time just remembering why you came. Uh, We'll give you the glory in Christ's name I pray. Amen.